Now, for several days in a row, I have been explaining about those aspects of the practice which bring insight. Now, I'll go back now to those aspects which are designed for calm and tranquility. We need to practice both, and they do go parallel in a manner of speaking, not simultaneous, obviously, can't do two things at the same time, but on a parallel track so that sometimes we go forward on one and sometimes go forward on the other. We have already heard about the first three jhanas, and I'll use the word jhana because it's so much shorter and simpler than meditative absorption. And uh, that's what it means, J-H-A-N-A. And the first three, pleasant sensation, joy, contentment, and peacefulness. And now we'll come to the fourth one. Right, the fourth one is explained here in this manner. Again, with the abandonment of pleasure and pain and with the disappearance of previous joy and grief, he reaches and remains in the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain, purified by equanimity and mindfulness. His former true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness vanishes and there arises a true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness, and he becomes one who is conscious of this true, but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training, and some pass away through training. That's about the um, most um, detailed explanation that we can find on the fourth jhana, and uh, if one hasn't done it, one can look at it and think, well, you know, so what to do with that? I mean, it doesn't really explain things very um, in detail. But the reason it doesn't do that is because if one has done the first three, the fourth one is the natural progression. And all that the Buddha is really interested in here is to explain that the training of meditation makes it possible to have certain perceptions, certain consciousness. The word perception here is not used in the same way as we have been used to using it for the four mental khandhas. In the four mental khandhas, the word perception is the naming. It's, it's when something hurts, we name it pain. That's the perceiving of it. Here, the word perception is used in the sense of consciousness, state of consciousness. And that is particularly difficult in Pali because these words are used interchangeably. But we have exactly the same difficulty in our languages because we also try to figure out what's awareness, what's consciousness, and aren't always quite sure. In this way, here, perception is the state, the level not the state, the level of consciousness. 
Now the level of consciousness, and I think I have already um, mentioned that once before, that an ordinary person has in everyday life is extremely ordinary. And we all know it. It hasn't got anything to recommend itself. It's constantly connected to something we like and something we dislike and something we want and something we don't want. I call it the marketplace mentality. And I think that says it all. I don't think we need to go any further on that. I think that is explanatory enough. But the Buddha says that isn't necessary, and obviously it isn't, because one can train oneself. And because one trains oneself through the different levels of the jhanas, one lets go of the lower to get to the higher. Obviously, how am I going to get to the higher if I don't let go of the one before? And again, at every level, he mentions that this is how some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. So training the mind for the jhanas, for the meditative absorptions, means that we are able to let go of the previous level and go deliberately to the next. There are many, many others, other discourses of the Buddha explaining the jhanas. And in some of them, he says that because we know that this previous, the one we have attained, is still gross and cannot be the finest and most subtle uh, perception that we can reach, we let go of it. Because we know we let go, in other words, deliberately and we reach for the next one. Now, the very first time one does that, it can entail a certain difficulty because one isn't quite sure where one is going. However, when one is able to concentrate the mind sufficiently to go to first, second, and third, which are the easy ones, the mind has a natural tendency to go to the fourth. It's totally natural. In fact, everybody, every human being that's ever thought about anything to do with states of mind has the natural yearning for peace and quiet in the mind. And we are devising innumerable ways and means of getting there. Needless to say, what happens? I mean, they are all concerned with ordinary thinking and ordinary relating. These are the ways and means of extraordinary relating to one's own mind. And these are the only ones that have the fulfillment of that what one looks for when one is concerned with having inner peace. So now here we have the abandonment of pleasure and pain. In other words, we let go of the joy and the contentment. Both of them still part of the third. There's a very definite observer in the third, first, second and third, very definite observer, who knows very well what's going on and who also knows that the peacefulness that one is aiming for is not yet attained. 
So one lets go of more and more of those inner states which are, well, here we have described as pleasure and pain, but that's only a matter of words. It's um, the perceptions of one's inner state. That's what is meant. Because in uh, there's no pain, actually, when one is in the third jhana. It is more that one is aware of the contentment. And the disappearance of previous joy and grief the only reason why the negative part or the the grief and, and pain part are mentioned is that it is supposed to show that all emotions disappear at this time. There is no uh, emotional state at all. And of course, having finally come to a place in oneself where there isn't any emotion, one can finally learn what it's like to be really without it, totally at peace. Anything which is other than that still has an emotion in it. So here we have, it's mentioned the grief part and the um, pain, not because they are present, but because it is supposed to mean no emotion at all. Pleasure and pain with the disappearance of previous joy, which means when it says, let's go already, of the joy of the second, but it's still in the background, but one lets go of all of that, and one reaches and remains the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain, purified by equanimity and mindfulness. Now, the word purified by equanimity and mindfulness should one give, should give one a very definite understanding what equanimity and mindfulness are good for. Their purification. Mindfulness is the most important purification factor. We have discussed mindfulness already and are still on the fourth one, the um, contents of mind, but I have over and over again mentioned that the mindfulness in daily life is the most important thing one needs to do. And it is so, such an obvious thing when one does it, and so obvious when one doesn't. The body, as one's main item of attention. The minute one is attentive to that, there is no pain, no pleasure. There's purification. And if purification doesn't happen, meditation doesn't happen. And if meditation doesn't happen, then purification doesn't happen, then the spiritual path doesn't happen. And it starts with watching what one is doing with one's body. Naturally, a person who is not an arahant, fully enlightened, will slip. But that's all right, as long as one knows that one has slipped. If one hasn't even started, one can't even slip. So let's start and slip whenever necessary. The purification system of mindfulness and equanimity. Now, equanimity is the purification factor for all emotions. It is the pinnacle of all emotions. It is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. 
when it is mentioned as the seventh factor of the seven factors of enlightenment, it is definitely meant as a state of the meditative absorption. And equanimity is not really what one notices in the fourth jhana. It is that which one can practice because of the fourth jhana. And this is mentioned here too. Now here it says, his former true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness vanishes, and there arises a true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. So, the, the fourth jhana, from a practical standpoint, operates in this manner. In the third, the mind feels that it, as if it has already settled. It feels settled. And this being settled gives the appearance to, to the observer as if it has dropped. And all of that are, of course, not All of these are, of course, manner of speaking. <laughs> I would suggest to try it sometime. <laughs> anyway, um, it has a feeling of as if the mind comes down because the first jhana is excited. The second jhana is still in excitement. The joy is exciting. And it gives the appearance as if the mind is still on a, in a level of, um, sort of where it can touch upon outer measure, or outer things. It hasn't really settled within yet. Although it is very strong, strongly experiencing joy, and it is an exciting, mildly, subtly exciting, um, feeling. Whereas, the third one already settles. It is no longer exciting because it's contented. And it's the first time that anybody's ever had any feeling of true contentment. But that comes to that state because it is wishless, totally wishless. And to, and, uh, to experience wishlessness, even momentarily, shows what it means to come to a state without any dukkha. Because that is the doorway, one of the three doorways to Nibbana. The doorway through dukkha, which means a doorway that means no wishes. And then dukkha at that moment is totally eliminated. Here we have a preview. The jhanas give one a preview of what it means to have purification, a preview of what it means to have a pathway. Without that, knowing what the pathway is, one is usually stumbling around in the dark and uses one's own opinions. And they are notoriously dangerous because one's own opinions, how can one possibly compare to the Buddha? Such conceit is a little bit more than what would be good for one.
So now, with the third one having already settled, one realizes that this settling isn't enough yet. It isn't totally peaceful. Because there is a very strong observer there. And with that, the mind has a wish to go deeper. Now I like to compare that with going down a well, which means one has to be able to give one one's up one's ego strength. One is only willing to get down into this well and drown in it if the ego is going to be a little less strong at that time as it usually is. Because usually it's the ego which is sitting there and says, look, mom, I can meditate well, or look how terrible I am, but none of that brings any meditation with it. None of that is even near meditation. It is all concerned with what I can do. But here, it's absolutely essential that we recognize the fact that the ego is in the way. And the ego is in the way in everything, in everything we do, think, or say. It is the one that constantly rearing its head and saying, that can't be true, it must be otherwise, this can't be like that. It must be the, the way somebody else said it. Or, they don't know, I know. And this is all ego talk, instead of actually doing it. To stop the mind from talking means that the ego is getting no support. Here, we have to stop the ego from wanting to observe even. Although there is a very subtle, and this is what it says, a subtle sense of an observer, it is so subtle that it is very difficult, if not well nigh impossible, to notice the observer. It is so subtle. Now here the ego has to not only give up its own ideas, viewpoints and opinions, that it knows better and can do it better and can do it differently, its own way naturally, but it even has to give up observing what's happening. Now that, of course, is difficult, and that's why the fourth jhana is much more difficult than the first three. The first three are, however, necessary as a pathway, and they bring already the independence from outer conditions. Without that independence from outer conditions for our own happiness, we're going to search for them wherever we go. And if we don't get them, we're going to be unhappy. We're going to be frustrated. Very popular word, frustrated. So now, when we get, but when we are able to let the ego really stop for a moment, and it's only momentarily, because how long can we be in the fourth jhana? I mean, it's a, usually people don't stay more than the, the time of the meditation, sometimes longer, but... Um, it's only momentary that the ego has to stop. It comes right back afterwards in full force and presents itself as having attained something wonderful. I have been in the fourth jhana. So we haven't actually been able to even minimize the ego concern but we've certainly been able to put it aside 
for a while. And that in itself is already a great benefit because it shows quite clearly that the real peace, the real one, the peace which is total and has completely different perception in it is only possible without the ego illusion, without having that constant idea of I'm doing it. So one can tell the difference between being in the force and coming out of it very clearly because when one comes out of it, the ego is proud of having been there. And that is then quite unpleasant again. And because of that, there is that strong urgency to practice to the point of getting rid of it once and for all. Not getting rid of the body and mind, but of the ego illusion which sits inside and says, look how nice I can do it, or look how terrible I can do it, or whatever I want I'm going to get, or whatever I want I can't get, whichever way we're looking at it. That experience makes it clearer than any previous one that the practice needs to be done to the very end, because this is what the mind has wanted. Now, as it is said here, the subtle sense of equanimity and happiness vanish. And this can be seen, now the happiness and joy is already gone, but the equanimity, the peacefulness, is also that third jhana has that in it, but the beginning of the four still has it in it. And that's why I'm using the well, because the well is a long thing where one can go in stages downward, where the mind can go deeper and deeper in stages. And as it goes deeper and deeper in stages, the equanimity disappears, and there's nothing but the total stillness, a complete and utter stillness, where when the mind comes out of it, it usually doesn't even know that it's been at the bottom of the well, or wherever that might be. These words are, of course, not a true explanation of a mind state or a level of consciousness. Neither are these words that are being used here. Words cannot adequately describe the states of mind which are actually part and parcel of our being. But when one has at least that much of a guideline, one has an idea that this is where the mind can go. And should it ever accidentally get there, which does happen, one has a very great benefit because one has then an understood experience. There are people, not so many in the world, but there are, who get to these levels of consciousness accidentally. Well, the word accidentally also doesn't describe it, but without proper training, without any instructions and have no idea what happened. So if that is the case, then this is extremely helpful. But also, for any meditator, it is very important to know that this is where meditation begins, at the first jhana. And it continues to the eighth. Now, this is the Buddha's way, and no other has ever been taught by the Buddha. Naturally, in conjunction with the tranquility meditation, we have the insight 
methods and the inside path. And we have already discussed some of it. The reason that this is an absolute must for the depth of understanding and the depth of meditation is manifold. There is, first of all, the reason that the word PT, the first jhana, is also translated as interest. The person who can do the jhanas with exceptions, there are some exceptions as for everything, will continue to do so, will continue to meditate. There are others who don't do them, also continue to meditate, admirable. But mostly those people who don't do them are often on meditators. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't because they can't see the benefit. There's nothing happening that they would like to happen. So the often on affair of meditation is well known to all meditators who've been going for some time. For those who do the jhanas, that is an exception if that happens. Now that's the first benefit. The second benefit is that one actually knows what it's like to be momentarily without this ego illusion. And having experienced that makes it absolutely imperative to get without that ego illusion more often, finally, permanently. The third benefit is to be totally independent of one's outer conditions for happiness and tranquility. That no, doesn't matter what's happening out there. One is independent of that. And probably the, the two most important benefits, it is the automatic purification system, without which the mind just doesn't have enough purity in order to be able to touch upon that inner point where the jewel of the mind has all the facets, brilliant and shiny, so that the truth can be seen in them. We all carry absolute truth within, but we can't get at it. All our thinking and all our desires, the greed of what we want, and the dislike, the hate of what we don't want, covers up that truth. So the purification system that we have here is absolutely necessary because we couldn't do it without it. We couldn't do it just by wanting to purify. That's one of the most important things. And the second most of the two most important things, the second one, is the fact that the mind that can do the jhanas is the mind that's clear and sharp. The Buddha compared a mind to an act which is useless when it hasn't been sharpened. A dull-edged axe will not only not cut the wood, it will probably be so difficult to handle that one will give up, and then it might even hurt one, because it will spring back from the, from the wood that one is cutting. Now, if we actually hone the, the axe and make it absolutely sharp, it will cut through the wood without any difficulty. 
and that's the mind. The well-honed mind that is sharp and clear and can cut through all the rubbish that goes on within and without. And see it clearly. See it completely. And seeing it completely, discard it. Now that well-trained and well-honed mind with sharp like an axe is necessary in order to go into the depth where the teaching is actually showing us absolute truth. The depth where that is seen, that absolute truth, needs a well-honed, well-trained, sharp mind. Because otherwise, all that other stuff is going to keep us on a level of superficiality where we will look for escape mechanisms, uh, sense pleasures, easier ways of doing it, although one could hardly think of an easier way than doing it through the jhanas. It's the most, the easiest and the most pleasurable way there is. But in the beginning it appears as if it were difficult because one can't quite get there from, uh, in the beginning. Without that clarity, the mind can't get at that what the Buddha is really teaching. One can see the words, one can hear the words. One can hear them over and over again, year after year, and never make any sense out of it. They are not meaningful because they show a level of truth which the mind can't grasp, which hasn't got the sharpness of a well-honed blade. So these are the benefits. And without them, it's hardly likely, unless one's done it in many past lifetimes, that one can get to anywhere on this path which will bring the kind of fruit that this is supposed to bring. Now the true, true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness and become, and the one becomes conscious, becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. Now the true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness is of course a feeling that if one looks at it with these words, as if it was a, a non-feeling. Well, if it's neither happy nor unhappy, the, uh, the feeling that remains is neutral. But that isn't the main factor of the fourth jhana, the neutral feeling. What this depicts again is no emotions are included in this state. It's emotionless. There are no emotions there. Its most prominent factor would be the complete stillness. The world has disappeared and the inner world has opened up. When one comes to the bottom of this or the depth of it, the sounds disappear also. The fourth jhana is also the springboard for the non-material meditative absorptions, five, six, seven, and eight. Five, six, and seven are called the vipassana jhanas, the inside jhanas. They bring automatic insight. The fourth one is that 
level of mind concentration which makes those higher states possible. They come here, the Buddha explains them here. It doesn't always, it doesn't always explain the higher ones. He very often just mentions and says that they come from the fourth, but here they are explained. The sense of stillness is so all-pervading that one also recognizes that when the mind gives up its interest in the world because it no longer believes that the world can actually give one something that one really wants, at that time that the, the stillness is all that is left and it is a sense of having stepped out of the ordinary consciousness for that time. The marketplace mentality is completely left behind because the marketplace is always connected with a lot of activity and a lot of um, emotions which the marketplace mentality goes on in the mind whether one is in the marketplace or not. Someone can have the marketplace mentality right there in the bush. I mean, it's not necessary to go out and go shopping. So, um, it is that activity which is busy. A marketplace is busy. Now here, this is the exact opposite. There is nothing that's busy. No busyness at all. And because of that, one, as one comes out of it, and this is the recognition afterwards. While one is in it, there's just no, nothing except this stillness. But as one comes out of it, one recognizes the fact that this is actually what one carries within. One carries that stillness within. Otherwise, one couldn't have got at it. And having been able to get at it, and recognizing the fact that one can get there again, that produces in oneself equanimity then one has equanimity in daily life. Then whatever happens is just like a little ripple on the ocean, which is the ocean being totally smooth and calm and the little ripples going up and down. And then all the little bubbles out of which the ocean consists, calling to each other and saying, look at me, I'm big, look at me, I'm small, look how pretty I am, look how ugly I am, and the minute they've said it, they've also already disappeared. And this is exactly what the world then can be expected to, to look like. And therefore, equanimity becomes the most prominent factor in the mind, in daily life. Equanimity is not indifference. Indifference is its mere enemy. The far enemy is anxiety, restlessness, worry, upset, reaction. But its near enemy is indifference because it appears to be as if one was equanimous but one is actually indifferent. Indifference is a protection that one puts around oneself as if it was a sort of a um, garment made out of steel preferably if one can't manage that then maybe wood and uh, or brick and uh, with that not hoping not to be touched 
by what goes on around oneself. And therefore not having to react. But that's a totally wrong way, of course, of approaching this problem because this um, way of protecting oneself doesn't work because the inner feelings also can't get out. Okay, the outer ones can't get in, but the inner ones can't get out. So love and compassion are lost completely. They haven't got anywhere they can get out. And so it's nothing but a complete self-interest. And the person who has that indifference feels like an observer of the way other people live, but not a participant, not participating in life. He's observing it and feels left out, standing on the edge and looking in, but not being in it. And that can become, of course, um, can come to the awareness as being the wrong way of being, but if it doesn't come to the awareness, nothing happens, it will just remain that way. This is a self-made barrier for one's protection because one usually reacts in an unpleasant manner, unpleasant for oneself, and therefore one doesn't want to continue that, and instead of learning equanimity, one is then uh, practicing indifference. This uh, is most um, (coughs) unpleasant for the person who is practicing that. For the people around that person, it's usually indistinguishable. One doesn't even know whether it is equanimity or indifference, because we're so used to people not having any love and compassion that we wouldn't even notice it that somebody else doesn't have it again. Because most people don't have it, so we're quite used to that. But the one who is like that doesn't feel very happy about it. It's not a very happy feeling. And it's impossible to get into the depth of meditation with it. Because the indifference is that uh, barrier, that wall we've put around our feelings, and the meditative absorptions are strictly based on feeling. So having that barrier, there's no way one can get in there. But equanimity, the pinnacle of all emotions, does arise out of the experience of knowing that there is utter stillness within. It's possible to get back there. It's not just a one-off experience, but it is possible to do it again. And because of that, one has a natural protection from all that happens in the world and one is, that one is easily touched of, uh, by because one knows one can get back into the stillness. Now, he uses the same sentence at the end every time that some consciousness arises through training and others pass away through training. Now, this obviously is training. And this is what we're trying to do here, train ourselves in meditation. And all of the outer conditions are given. Everybody has to deal with their inner condition. And if we can't deal with our inner condition, there's nothing one can do about it, is there, until we can deal with our inner condition. Nobody can change one's mind except oneself. 
and one needs to see the unnecessary and uh, quite um, damaging effect that the mind that is disturbed and uh, busy has on oneself. One needs to know that oneself is only the victim. Nobody else is the victim, only oneself. And we are victimizing ourselves if we don't get our mind to be quiet and still and experience the deeper levels of its ability. The Buddha wouldn't have taught this if it wasn't possible for everybody to do it. He taught ordinary people like ourselves. With the exception, possibly, that these people were more used to spiritual teaching. India has always been the country where spirituality was a daily occurrence. And even though people were more used to spiritual teaching and still are probably there, there were people who listened to the Buddha and didn't believe a word. It's nothing new. It always happened. They came and they came again and they still couldn't get over their own opinions and views. It's all right as far as that goes, but it's a great loss for the person who goes to the trouble of coming to listen to the Buddha and then goes away without any result from it. And yet, these states, these levels of consciousness were taught to everybody who would come and listen. Now this person, Potapada, that he's talking to, um, is just an ordinary everyday person. I mean, there's nothing special about him. He's explaining these things to him. And he does it over and over again. And quite often, he talks to just one person. He doesn't, I mean, sometimes he had crowds of hundreds, but um, thousands probably. But sometimes he just talks to one person and uh, in answer to questions. So if this was given to ordinary people, there's no reason why we as ordinary people can't do it. It's, a, it's the mind, the human mind, which has that ability. And without taking advantage of that ability, which is inherent in all human minds, we are shortchanging ourselves completely. We are not making use of a precious human rebirth. This is an excellent rebirth, made even more excellent by the fact that we have the opportunity to hear the true Dhamma, the Sad Dhamma, we can hear it. That is even rarer than anything else. So we, if we don't... Um, train ourselves in this way, we are losing out on the most valuable thing that our mind can actually do for us. There is another aspect of this which I like to mention. And as we go into the inside steps again and more in further, further on, further progression, we will come to that. Naturally, 
the jhanas are the means. Insight is the goal. But to do only the, to gain insight without having a mind which can be totally happy and totally still, the insight can produce a great deal of fear, panic, terror. Terror is actually mentioned as one of the steps on the way of insight. Now, a person who has a totally calm mind, completely still, has a preview of what it's like to be without me, just for the time of meditation, will not get this terror. There's no way, because the mind already knows what it's like and has the ability to go within where there isn't anybody or anything. There is only stillness. And therefore, all these um, states which are often the turning point where the person turns back. When there is a great deal of terror, a person can very easily turn back and say, this is getting too much for me. I'll go and sit a little bit, but I don't want to go any further. So at that point, the uh, it's quite a, a difficult point. This will never arise for anyone who does the jhanas. And not only that, the Buddha calls the jhanas the pleasant abiding, living pleasantly. And also in the Majjhima Nikaya, discourse number 68, he says, Sense pleasures are gross, but the pleasures of the jhanas, that is a pleasure I will allow myself. So the, this is the pathway of the enlightened one and was the pathway of his disciples and it is available to us. We can have that pathway just for the training. The determination to do it, which is all like a, um, a starter motor, and the um, the understanding that the level of consciousness, which is thinking, is the lowest level of consciousness that we could possibly ever touch upon. There's nothing lower than that. Everything else is higher. And if we get that through our mind, that, that, that that's our lowest level of consciousness, this thinking part, then we might have enough impetus to say, okay, I'm going to stop thinking, see what happens. Now, the human mind is so conceited that it thinks that because we can think we're something, we think even that we are the uh, pinnacle of creation. I mean, that's a big joke. I mean, if this is the pinnacle of creation, I mean, the whole thing isn't worth having been created. So, this conceit in the mind then prevents us from actually becoming aware of what the human mind can do. It can do far more than invent technological um, new uh, ideas and go to the moon and, and make computers. It can do far more than that. 
it can actually be completely still, completely peaceful, completely happy, have inner joy without outer conditions, expand to to the size of the universe and know that I am that. It can do all of those things. All it has to do is stop thinking and being so conceited to believe that thinking is really worthwhile. Conceit is probably the worst um, uh, of the hindrances. And with this, in this case, I mean conceit where the mind says, I know better. And to know better than the Buddha, that's really something, isn't it? I'll start on the fifth jhana. I don't think, I don't think that I'll finish it, but I'll start on it. I'll read what it says on the fifth jhana. Now the first four, rupa jhana, fine material meditative absorptions. Long, four long words. In Pali, just rupa jhana. Next one, ah rupa jhana. The syllable ah, just in the A, means non. So, translated immaterial meditative absorption, the Rupa Jhanas. Now, the Rupa Jhanas are called that because we have reference points, at least that much. We have the reference point of having pleasant sensations, we have a reference point of being joyful, reference point of having contentment and a reference point of having inner peace. Now obviously the reference points in our ordinary life are nowhere near that what we experience in the jhanas but at least we have something to refer to. People can say well these pleasant sensations were like and then they can say it was like floating or it was like uh, tingling or it was like this or it was like that. And with the joy, people can say, well, I was so joyful, I was crying. I mean, there are reference points there. With the Arupa jhanas, it becomes more difficult. Because it is immaterial, non-material, we have the reference points are lost. They are states of mind which go far beyond anything that we have ever even imagined. Our imagination isn't even um, good enough for that. But the experience is good enough for that. We can experience it. The human mind has the potential to be enlightened. And because it has the potential to be enlightened, it certainly has the potential to have those experiences also. I'll read what it says. Again, bypassing entirely beyond bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, Seeing that space is infinite, he reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite space. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. This jhana is called infinite space or the infinity of space. And it's quite interesting how it is described here because it is really not so easy to understand. Uh, passing entirely beyond bodily sensations it also gives a funny um, uh, aspect to it because in the fourth jhana there are no bodily sensations and yet there is that feeling of having dropped 
but the mind having dropped. It's not the body having dropped. So the bodily sensations are long gone. But what happens here in the fifth jhana is that it has the appearance because it says, and this is the, the disappearance of all sense of resistance. Now this is a very interesting aspect because at this point in time, if you just put your attention on your body for a second, you will notice that the body has a very distinct limit, a very distinct border. That's it. That's my body. Where this finishes, that's where the body finishes. Well, what are we doing? We are resisting to let it float because that would impair our sense of identity. We can only keep the sense of identity, the ego sense, going if we know this is me, up to here and no further. And all that out there, not me, nothing to do with me. And this is the resistance we have. And in daily life we continually protect these borders, just like countries protect their borders. And we don't want anybody to get too near unless they've already had the necessary qualifications and the necessary identifications and they've already gone through the whole rigmarole of immigration and can show that they have the papers to prove that they're not going to do any harm to anybody. Then maybe we let them come a little nearer. But this is the resistance we have up to here, no further. And because of that, there's a great sense of alienation People have that everywhere. And they try to um, go back in their childhood and find why they got it and, and all this kind of thing. And none of it really applies. It's self-made. They're doing it constantly. Now, if you can just picture it for one moment, this is me and no further. Everything else is not me anymore. But in meditation, when the mind has con- complete concentration, None of this applies. There's no... The sense of me in the fourth jhana has become so so fine already that it doesn't matter anymore that there are... whether there are borders or not. So the resistance to being all of it has completely disappeared. The sense of resistance. And when that sense of resistance disappears, when it is, one is willing to give oneself up and give oneself completely, then of course the mind has a totally different experience from what we have now. Right now it is what we call contracted. It is contracted to me. I know, I hear, I know better, I know worse, I whatever it is that it knows. This is me, this contracted mind. But when the mind no longer has that within, then it's expanded mind. So here we come to the point of the concentration being such that it starts expanding the mind, the consciousness starts expanding and it starts out from the body it seems to anyway this is, these are reference points which are extremely helpful when one actually does it when one doesn't do it doesn't matter what the reference points are so one comes to one's own bodies, which is very subtle at that time, the body 
um, consciousness is subtle. But because there's no resistance in the mind, it seems to expand, the body seems to expand further and further. And in some explanations, the Buddha says, an asset expands further and further. One sees the trees and the forests and lets them go. One sees the villages and the towns and lets them go. And one sees that this whole uh, earth we live on is only limited and lets it go. And then goes into the infinity of space. Very often, well, yes, sometimes, <laughs> people find that as they go along this from the body to maybe the planet, they go out to the sky, which we know, reference point, sky, and that expands into infinity. The mind at this time is not contracted and limited. It is at that time unlimited. And as it is unlimited at that time, it can do anything at all. And so the first step it will do is this one. It would have very much recommended going step by step so that one knows exactly where one's at and doesn't have to wonder and worry what is this now. Is it already enlightenment or something like that? Or um, am I, am I um, doing something wrong? So that's why one should know this is fifth, this is sixth, this is seventh. One should know exactly what one is doing. So the, it starts at the, at the body contours and goes out further and further and further until there's nothing left except space. Now that experience uh, uh, enables the mind to, to be without barriers, without resistance. This is what this says. And the next sentence says, the non-attraction to the perception of diversity. And that's very interesting, because we are attraction, attracted to the differences we see. Different people, all very interesting looking. Different uh, birds, different colors, different trees different species of trees, uh, different countries. We want to go traveling, want to see different countries and see what the other people do. And uh, we want to have uh, the experiences that we see when we go into the mountains, very interesting, or we go to the seaside. We are attracted by diversity, which in Pali is called papancha, diversity. I think it sounds very good, the word that has uh, the uh, content of what it means, papancha, everything's papancha. It's all over the place. Nature is papancha. It wants diversity. It propagates diversity. And we like it. But now, here, because of giving up the resistance to being one single unit within the whole, we also no longer attracted by this diversity of different trees, different uh, forests, different towns, villages, people, and so on. The attraction is no longer there. We can let it go. Now, obviously, we have to learn letting go somewhere along the line. We can't learn it here. The fifth jhana does not let, lend itself to le learning to let go. Learning to let go has to happen before we get into the first one. Even in the first one, we can still learn to let go. Because the first one uh, the pleasant sensation 
are still interrupted by our thought processes. But now, having gone this far, there's no way of learning to let go anymore. This has to be established now. Now, letting go. The Buddha said, and it's quite true, that the most difficult thing to let go are our own views and opinions. Try sometimes. Let them go. Just do instead of think. More doing than thinking. Doing meaning just getting concentrated. Not thinking about it. Just doing it. Letting go of all these ideas that are in the head. This one said this and that one said this. And I read this somewhere and I saw that somewhere. And I know better because I've already done this or that. Or I should be doing it this way or that way. Why not just forget the whole, the whole of that and just do it? And then you don't have to worry whether it's this way or that way. The mind knows it's this way or it's the way you did it. One's well, got to do it. Now, letting go is the key word for any spiritual practice. And with that, I'm going to let go of this explanation and go to Mosville to teach meditation. <laughs> Continue tomorrow. If you have any questions, you can ask them if you like anything. Is uh, is this jhana this feeling of uh, the the expanding? That's how it starts. Coming apart. It starts like an explosion, but slowly. Not an explosion, no, slowly. Slowly, if it was an explosion, it's slowly. Mm. Mm. That's how it like starts. Like a flower growing. Mm? Like a flower coming apart. You know, you know, this flower. Mm, maybe, yes. Yeah. And then, then eventually until you, then you go up into space. Uh, no, you don't go up into space. Nobody goes into but space. You feel like you're going into space. Mm. Well, maybe you could say like that. The only thing left in the consciousness is space. You don't go anywhere. It's just that's all that's left. Space, a complete spaciousness with nothing in it. And individuals would feel and see different things? No, you wouldn't see a thing. Inside a... No, if you see something, that's uh, just the mind telling stories again. You see blackness. Not or likely in that or, one. Or, yeah. You understand it? Ever been, no- ever been knocked out? Or ever been knocked out? Knocked out. Punched or something hit you on the head hard and then knocked out? Uh, I wouldn't hope so that that happened. <laughs> that, you have, you've never had this experience? Of being knocked out? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, nobody's locked me out lately. Well, I have you been hit on the head hard and you get all, you see all the stars? Oh, that kind of thing, yes. Well, I don't haven't had it happen to me, but I know what you're talking about. Um, I don't think that's the right uh, way of describing it. I can't, I'm not sure, but I don't think it's the right way of describing it. It's an expansion in the mind which uh, comes to the point of seeing nothing separate. 
And it's best to start with the first jhana and keep going. One, two, three, four, five. One after the other. And then the whole thing is very clear. Okay? Anything else? Yes. Um, do you, by doing this, do you lose the opinion of yourself as you're being attacked? At this point, after you come out, yes. So when you come like back to normal consciousness, you, you would realize that about non-self? You would... After you come out of the fifth jhana, this is the first one of those where you actually know that you weren't, that there was no separate entity within the consciousness during the meditation. And as you come out, you have the feeling of separate entity again. But you know that that is um, a mistake. You know it is to be a mistake, but you can't lose it just like that takes a fair bit of doing to lose that feeling. So it's not like the kind of insight It certainly is. Oh, yes. yes, but it's not a past moment. You only lose the feeling of self in a past moment. The other, the other times, uh, in the inside knowledges, which um, we will come to as we go along, um, you get an understanding and this is what you get here too. But you don't lose a feeling of self. You still know who wakes up in the morning. Anything else? Yes. Uh, does a common mind uh, go automatically into the jhanas or uh, can a common mind also stay outside? Or does it automatically? Yes. If it unless one has determined to do something else. I mean, you can sit down and become calm and determine not to go into the jhanas but to investigate something. You can determine that. But if you don't do that, if you allow the mind to do what it will naturally like to do, um, it will go into the jhanas when it's completely calm. But you can stop it from doing that if you want to. Mm. I not meditating. I like, get very calm. But something I hear a sharp noise or something. I'll jump. That's not mm. obviously. I'm not calm. If I was calm, I wouldn't jump. Mm, well, no, you wouldn't jump, but you'd still hear it. Right. That's that's the thing to overcome. Yeah. Do you still really sort of get go like that, or what? Well, in the first three jhanas, one does hear the noise. And it can be like an, um, a f- an unpleasant uh, feeling when one yeah. hears a noise. Mm, well, frightened shouldn't happen, actually. Unpleasantness. Yeah, like that. Yes. The first three jhanas, you do hear the noise. But in the third one, you hear the noise as if you're sitting under a glass bowl. It doesn't, it isn't as, as distinct as it was before. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Cushion. In the fourth one, you don't hear it. Down at the bottom of the world, you don't hear it. On top of the world, you still hear it. 